Welcome to Talatera, a podcast about freelance educators working in natural resource fields and environmental education. Who are these educators? What do they do? Join me and let's find out together. This is your host, Tanya Marion. Today, my guest is Stephanie Dole, scientist, educator, researcher, and the founder of Beetle Lady. Through programming taught at schools, libraries, birthday parties, and corporate events, Stephanie introduces the public to insects and the field of entomology. Stephanie has extensive field experience collecting and studying insects and brings her expertise to her public programs. What kind of research has Stephanie completed? How did she start Beetle Lady? How is she expanding her programs? Let's find out. My name is uh, Stephanie Dole, Dr. Stephanie Dole, and I am a PhD entomologist who runs my own education business for all ages, and it's called Beetle Lady, and I'm based in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I started it three years ago with the goal of being an ambassador for one of the largest groups of organisms on the planet to people in my community to help them love and appreciate and understand and tolerate, coexist with um, insects and arachnids and other terrestrial arthropods. I like to begin a conversation by asking guests about their relationship with nature. And I've read that you were a biology kid from the very beginning. I was, though I always, always will wonder what my childhood would have been like if I had grown up someplace different than where I grew up. I grew up in the middle of Los Angeles, in a pretty urban area of Los Angeles. And so I loved animals all my life. I went through a really strong phase where I loved turtles when I was seven years old. I loved turtles and went to, my dad would take me to the local turtle and tortoise club. And, and then I got really into whales and dolphins for a number of years as a, about 11, 12 years old. Um, and then I was a teenager for a few years and I still loved biology, but I didn't have any particular passion in any particular area. And then towards the end of high school, I got very interested in insects. Just, it was like falling in love. I just became completely enamored and completely obsessed and eventually decided that that's what I wanted to pursue for the rest of my life, for my education. But yeah, I grew up in an area where I I see kids who actually get time out in nature, who have creeks to explore and natural areas to explore. And we went to the beach and, and things like that, but my parents weren't campers at all. I didn't go camping until uh, much later in life. And And so I often wonder like what it would have been like to be one of those kids who grew up with nature right in their backyard. Because I certainly made do. I dig for roly-polies in the garden, and I loved going to the Natural History Museum in Los Angeles, which is still a favorite place. I'm actually going there in a couple weeks with my own kids to see their spider pavilion. But yeah, I, I didn't grow up with a lot of nature around me, unfortunately, but I grew up loving it. It was just, it was like it was uh, innate in me, and I see the same in my own my own son in particular. He's also like that. It's just in him that He loves animals and biology. Mm -hmm. When did you realize that nature was important to you? Hmm. I had had a wonderful experience. This 
goes back to what we were just talking about. So I grew up in Los Angeles in a really urban area. And then right before I turned 16, my parents announced that they had quite on, on impulse bought a house in Salt Lake City, Utah, and were moving us to Utah. You know, they weren't even looking. They just bought a house while on a trip. <laughs> and we moved there, and I ended up going to a school. Uh, the school was called, it still exists. It's a high school. Actually, it's a grade school through high school called Realms of Inquiry. And this school had a very strong outdoor program. And the outdoor program involved, uh, you'd start the school year off with a two-week backpacking trip. We would often go to the Wind Rivers range in Wyoming. And we would also do a month in another country. So we did one month in Mexico camping and one month in Belize and Guatemala camping. And I think for me, so that was an amazing thing for me in that it turned me from a very urban a young woman to a very um, capable camper, backpacker, hiker, um, much more comfortable in nature, which, you know, fast forward to my career as an entomologist, I've worked in the Amazon, I've worked in Southeast Asian rainforests. So I, I don't know how I could have done those things without having that experience kind of leading me from being very urban child to somebody who could camp and hike and, and all of those things. And those trips were huge for me, being out in real wilderness. You know, they weren't, especially the backpacking trip, we were in actual wilderness, which was something I had never experienced before. And they had such a profound effect on me emotionally. I kept journals at the time. I still have them to this day. And for me, that was huge. That, that, and then, then adding to that, then getting a chance to actually visit a, a tropical rainforest in Belize and in Guatemala and see that sort of ecosystem and diversity was enormously life-changing for me. So I think that's, it was it, in those experiences um, between the ages of 16 and 18 at the end of high school that just had a, a tremendous effect on me, realizing that nature was really important to me and was something that I had I had had in its own version in Los Angeles. You know, we went to the beach and things like that, but um, really have that understanding that wilderness exists and that nature exists in this much broader sense than a lot of us experience. Those experiences then influenced your choice of major when you went to school? Yeah, I mean, I knew, I think I knew from probably age six or seven on that I was going to be a biologist of some sort. You know, I think kids who love animals recognize that love early and then maybe play around with some of the ideas that they hear from adults like, oh, I might be a veterinarian. I might be this or that. I was, you know, I really wanted to be a cetacean biologist, a marine biologist that studies whales and dolphins for a while. And then the entomology was so strong and of an interest and at the right time, right? Right at the end of high school. And so I decided that um, at first I thought, oh, well, you know, I don't want to do that because if I get a degree in entomology, then I'm going to pigeonhole myself. I'm going to be trapped. You know, I'm going to make this decision to be this very specific profession for the rest of my life. And I felt a little uneasy about that. But then I actually, I had started as a biology major at a different college and then left went to community college and started, did a transfer agreement to, I was at a California community college and did a transfer agreement to UC Davis to, to study entomology there, which is one of the places where you can still get an undergraduate degree in entomology. 
And I was so glad I did because I always tell people it was, I got to take my general biology class. I got a very good general biology degree, but then the insects would make everything relevant. It would like make it a story, right? So I would take an ecology class, but then I'd get to take an insect ecology class. Um, I'd learn, I'd take an evolutionary biology class, but then I'd study insect systematics and biodiversity and evolution. And so it, it made everything a lot more relevant. Like for me, chemistry was very abstract until unfortunately when I took my graduate degree chemistry classes and about insect chemical ecology. And then all of a sudden I wished I could go back and retake general chemistry. So I understood it better because I needed, I think I needed that story and that, that relevance to something. Yeah, so then, so then I, I decided pretty, there was a little hesitation in the beginning about do I do general biology? And, you know, people always have advice and opinions for young people. So I had some people saying, don't, don't do that. That's a graduate degree. But I'm so glad I did because I, I really got an amazing background and, an, and a really amazing experience at Davis studying entomology and then went on to do graduate work in, in entomology as well. Okay. And what kind of research have you done? So I was always interested in biodiversity of insects, and I worked in insect collections as an undergraduate. So I worked at the Bohart Museum of Entomology at UC Davis, which is their insect collection. It's one of the larger collections in North America. And I also worked at the California Department of Food and Agriculture in Sacramento. They also have an insect collection and a whole group of systematists who essentially do um, the work of identifying insects for the state, but then also have their own research programs for their own organismal groups. And I, I always love the idea of kind of putting together the puzzle of evolution. And uh, with insects, this is a group that the most conservative entomologists estimate that we have about 5 million species of insects on the planet, and we only have 1 million of those described. You know, so only 1 million of those have been cataloged and discovered by science. Uh, I worked in the rainforest uh, of Ecuador with a Smithsonian researcher, Ter Dr. Terry Irwin. His estimates are closer to 20 million, he thinks. So, you know, even if you go on the conservative side, one in five insects is known and four out of five are unknown. So to me, that was really exciting, this idea that you could still discover a new species and, and make that sort of basic scientific discovery. So I ended up, my graduate degree was on the systematics and evolution of bark beetles. And uh, I came to bark beetles, to be honest, because that's where there was funding. There was a National Science Foundation grant, so it meant that my PhD was completely funded. I didn't go into any debt to go to school, and I got to travel around the world and collect bark beetles and, and do all this uh, work of both. We did very traditional methods of looking at their morphology and their physical characteristics, and then we also sequenced DNA and then put the two together to try to come up with a hypothesis. And ultimately, of course, justification for this was that bark beetles are a major pest and are often introduced from the tropics through human activity, through importation of wood products and other products, and so can show up and devastate native habitats in North America and Europe. And so that, that's like ultimately what the justification was for financing it, because unfortunately, there's very little just pure funding for just discovering insects for the sake of discovering people often want to have that financial justification or you know economic justification or, or, or security justification so 
so yeah, I did. My PhD was on a particular group of bark beetles and I, I got to work with them and I got to discover new species and a new genus of bark beetle and um, got to travel and work in tropical rainforests. And it was wonderful. And I still have a, a lot of interest in systematics. And I, I really do one of the goals that I kind of have been bringing up a lot in the last year is I'd really like to find a way to bring back some of that into what I do with Beetle Lady. So maybe find a group of beetles that occurs in Western North America that could use some some work and, and integrate it into classes maybe, especially when I work with adults or high school students or, or even some of the younger kids, like show them, you know, this we're going to look for these, we're going to find them, this is where they live. So kind of add that to, to what I do. So that's been an ongoing one of these things in the background that I've been thinking of now that Beetle Lady has kind of settled and taken off and been established. Yes, yes. Because as you're speaking, I was thinking, gosh, I was wondering, do you, do you do any consulting on the side with any of the agencies? Yeah, you know, I, I haven't. I haven't. And I, I haven't really, I've been busy enough with the education business that, you know, I hesitate to pull in stuff like that. But I thought about it. I thought about other things. There's an outfit that I follow on social media called Taxon Expeditions. And this is a group that's made an interesting model where they actually bring researchers and people who want to do ecotourism, but that's scientific discovery ecotourism mm-hmm. together. And they go out. You know, so I thought, wow, wouldn't, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. So I think at this stage, three years in, the business is actually happening and I'm making a name for myself and I'm at a point where there's the question of what else? Like I, I love to author books, maybe books, especially for young, young readers. Um, Cause I'd like to see more quality books, especially about some topics that I've, I haven't, there are no young reader books about, like I do a class on cochineal insects and dyeing natural dyes for cochineal. That would be a great children's book, you know, um, mm-hmm. something about the, the bugs in my food and in my mommy's lipstick. And, you know, I think that would be amazing. So yeah, I'm kind of at that stage of, oh, okay, this is working. This is actually, people wanted this business more than I thought they did. There was more of a a market for it, more of a desire for it than I anticipated. And now I can kind of think, well, what else? What else do we add to it? And I would like to, you know, you don't go and do a PhD and then like maybe, maybe some people, but I, I definitely, as much as I didn't want to be in full-time academia, I also don't want to leave that, that research side behind because I, I worked hard to train for that. So. Yeah. And so, you know, you could, it, you know, there some ideas could be develop your own citizen science program. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, cataloging, working with with that sort of thing. Because there's California, you know, is so diverse that we really, even though a lot of the undiscovered species of insects are, are in the tropics, there's still some here, and there's still stories to to look into here and and investigate, and you know, so. I think, mm-hmm. yeah, I've been yeah. thinking about that too. You started Beetle Lady three years ago. Mm-hmm. And was that when your freelance career began? Or did it begin earlier than that? Pretty much. Yeah, that's pretty much when it when it began. Because I, I had found out that I was pregnant with my first child three days after I got hooded with my PhD. And so I took a little time, you know, spent some time publishing 
chapters of my dissertation and that sort of thing. And then I worked at uh, a museum out here. It used to be called Coyote Point Museum, and it's now called Curiodicy. And I did that for a while. Both I started as a volunteer when I was pregnant, and then I, I did classes afterwards for younger kids and did like a science program for young children. And that was really fun and I really enjoyed it. And it was right near my house. So it was a good kind of easing back into working. And then uh, I taught at the University of San Francisco. They needed an entomology class. And so I taught there for a few semesters and then had my second child. And when I went to them after she was born, when I was ready to go back to work, they had hired a tenure track ecologist and they were teaching a class that fulfilled the same requirements as my entomology class. So, you know, I, I did that. I, it was just an adjunct job, you know, not, not much, no benefits, nothing. And, um, and so then I, all throughout the years, what I kept ending up doing is my friends knew I was an entomologist and they would ask me, will you come into my classroom if the friend was a teacher or I would go into my kids' schools and do things. And then um, a big one that, that really was a huge part of the motivation to start Beetle Lady was for my children's preschool that both of them had attended. We would do a fundraiser every year called Bug Day. And me and a teacher would set up the classroom and have kids spend a morning just doing all sorts of bug activities. And every time I'd come home from doing that, I think we did it two or three years before I started Be Lady, I would say, gosh, this is really what I should be doing. I would just be filled with this energy and this joy. And I just enjoyed it so much that, um, yeah, so that, that, that's when I decided. I kept kind of saying maybe, maybe, maybe. And then finally, I just said, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to see how it goes. And, and so then I launched the business. I've had the privilege of experiencing one of your workshops oh, you. uh, recently at the Wild Wonder Nature Journaling Conference. And you go all in. <laughs> and so how did you go from that moment of this is what I should be doing to having the programs that you have, the traveling museum and the live animals and everything that you take with you? Yeah. So I, I, I kind of officially started the business in July of 2016. And, uh, but I pretty much spent that first six months until December, January, December 2016, January 2017, um, developing programs. So I, I kind of basically sat down and, and said, okay, what do I want to do? I want to, and I, one of the components early on that I knew I wanted to do was a, a young child program, a preschooler program, probably stemming from that experience at, at the preschool. And so I, yeah, I, I started that program and I just basically sat down and said, okay, I want to have a handful of classes. So I think I, I had six or eight classes that I just came up with, bought the, the props for and things like that, and then slowly started building and adding on more and more and more to them. So yeah, I think a lot of that was, was kind of in place by a year in, but I, when I launched the business, it wasn't one of the key goals I had was not to have one one size fits all class about bugs because for me that would have been that would be incredibly boring to over and over again repeat myself with with the same thing so I developed yeah I started uh, putting together things like the display cases and then I you know I started figuring out what was the what was the need early on in the business I was going to do curriculum boxes that I rented out to teachers 
but I found that nobody wanted that. They wanted me to come to the classroom. They wanted me to do things in the classroom. And so that, that got dropped pretty quickly, that that wasn't something that I was just having so much demand for the teaching that, um, that I, I just focused on that mostly. So, and, and that's the fun part. Like I'll, I'll come up with an idea in the shower or on a walk, you know, I'll say, oh, wow, we could, you know, I could do this, this rhyme that I heard or this rhyme that I did with my kids when they were little. What if I changed the words and made it about bugs and, you know, or, oh, these are great prop that I could use. And um, so kind of putting together that program and I'm always adding new classes um, for the same reason to kind of keep it interesting for me and, and because I have now started to do lots of regular jobs at libraries. I have two libraries that bring me each bring me twice a month. And so, you know, to just kind of keep things fresh and new. I mean, a good thing about teaching children is you always end up with a new turnover of audience every few years. So that's good as well. Yeah. Yeah. You, know, you definitely do not do only one thing. I absolutely love how you show your work on your website. How you pre- how you present your programs, how you present your packages, how you're how you're upfront with your pricing, how you present the promise that you're making to any prospective client. Thank you for saying that. One of the best decisions I made very early on was before I even told anybody I was starting Beetle Lady, I hired a graphic designer, and she did amazing that my logo and everything. And people, one of the comments I get very often is people will say, "You've only been doing this for." you know, X number of years, however long it had been when they were making this comment. Uh, I've seen your website and it doesn't, it looks like you've been doing this forever. Or they'd say, I've seen your logo around town. You know, I, I, I sponsor school jogathons and things like that. So my logo goes on t-shirts. And so every time from day one, people have seen Beetle Lady, it's been, it's had that look. And so it's recognized. And that was, I felt like that was a really good decision early on. Some people were saying, oh, don't do that. Just start doing little classes and it'll all come later. But I felt like hiring her and having her professional touch to it and really, you know, make sure everything I put forward had that consistency really was a great decision Uh, Mm business-wise, which is good because I'm not like the most astute business person (laughs) for sure. You know, I think a lot of us who love something else are not necessarily, you know, I'm not the type who would have gone to business school. So <laughs> it was, that was one good business decision I definitely made. And so your classes, their packages, as you present them today, have you always presented the package in that way and the different grade levels and, and all that? Or did that develop over time? Yeah. I mean, one thing that I realized, I think, a few months in was that I could have classes that were for, I, I would have a class that's for one age, but I'd also have a similar class for the younger kids as well. So for instance, I have a class called Bugs Change for preschoolers, which is essentially about metamorphosis. And then I have a metamorphosis class for older kids. And I realized sometimes the libraries, for instance, will bring me and they'll advertise that it's for school-age children, but I'll have a room that's 50% you know, preschoolers because parents bring younger siblings or parents are at the library with their kids. And so that enabled me too to kind of also realize I could, I could adapt what I was teaching to to the crowd, and I keep those supplies for teaching those classes together, so that they come with me, and then on the fly I can say, you know, we're looking at at third graders, and so we're going to try to teach to this crowd, or we've got this crowd. 
so that that helped too to to really kind of present it that way also but yeah I, I try to follow I have certain formats early on I decided for the preschoolers that we would have this certain format and I do it every time and that's um, that we we start out with an interactive story time we play a game that I call what did beetle lady collect today where I show them how entomologists work um, looking for insects so I show them different tools that we use like a like our nets and our beading sheets and our pooters which is what entomologists call an aspirator and then we meet live bugs. There's always the live I have as you right behind me, a lot of them. I have a whole troop of live spiders and beetles and millipedes and things like that that come with me. And then we do a little movement time. And then there's usually a song or a rhyme that we sing together. And then there's a craft or some sort of activity like that. So I, I kind of came up with these formats that seem to, to work and I've um, stuck with them. And then I've been, then also just the demand of what people have asked me to do has created new things. Wild Wonder is definitely a, a key example of that. I, I've been working really hard on improving my own drawing skills and was talking to people about Wild Wonder. And I said, well, what about an insect drawing class where you have live models? Because I know that's a challenge for nature journalers is having a live organism that doesn't just hide under a rock or run away the second you start sketching them. So I thought, well, I have all these living organisms that are great models that people could, could have that. So that to me was really exciting because I really like art and I really like drawing insects. And now to find that there's a community of artists locally, I already have another job that I'm going to be doing where I'm going to be doing a, a bug drawing birthday party for somebody who was at Wild Wonder. So that kind of happens that, you know, similarly, I was approached a couple years ago by Design Tech High School which is the charter school that opened at the company Oracle. And so they're, they're based on the design thinking lab in, at Stanford University. And they contacted me and they asked if I would do an insect class for their students during what they call their intercession, which is a two week period where they do these, suppose, you know, fun elective classes. And I've been doing that now for, gosh, over two years there. I, I do it three or four times a year, depending on the schedule. And uh, it's great. You know, I get to teach high school entomology, which I have a lot of entomologist friends who are very envious of that. They think, wow, like, it, that's really great. Um, so yeah, and, and docent groups have hired me. So basically, people come to me, they say, well, would you do this? And I like that, because often there's an idea floating in my head but until I actually schedule it, maybe I'm, I don't take the time to actually develop it. So I find that really exciting to get to find out what people want. Right now I'm working on a native gardening, plant gardening class for pollinators, for adults at the libraries, things like that. So seeing where the demand is. Yeah. You mentioned at the conference you do corporate events as well. And I thought that's, that's a great way to branch yourself out. <laughs> Yeah, and that kind of, that came to me. Like, I, I literally got called by uh, the, the big, biggest corporate event I did was for Rodan and Field Skincare, which is a skincare company that's based in San Francisco. And they, it was funny because they asked me to come do it for their, for the kids. It was a family celebration for an anniversary for the, the company. And, um, and the kids were there and they were great. But oh boy, about 75% of the people who I spent the evening with were adults who wanted to have their photos taken with the bugs and wanted to meet the bugs. And they actually asked me back this year, but unfortunately I was uh, on a trip. I was in, I think I was in Ecuador when, they, when that was happening. But 
yeah, so, you know, things come up. Basically, I try to tell people, look, if, if you want anything to do with terrestrial arthropods, with insects and arachnids, I'm your person. Like, I will, I'd be happy to do whatever people, you know, if somebody's filming a movie and they need some cockroaches for a prop, I'm there, you know, whatever, anything people would want, I'd be happy, happy to facilitate. You know, so you mentioned pollinators and I was thinking, I, you know, watching you work at the conference, you were so busy, you had so much to bring with you and to share and to talk about and so much to do. I was wondering, what do you do during pollination week? Do you do something special then? And are you super busy then, especially? You know, so, you know what's really funny? Uh, this isn't going to give you much to go on with the answer. But for instance, I have never been booked on Earth Day. Never. Not once. How, how can that be? People assume I am booked. And so I've never been booked on Earth Day, for instance, ever. <laughs> and maybe I need to put it out there more. Um, so Pollinator Week, I didn't, you know, honestly, I didn't really do anything particularly special because I think I had already been booked by people who didn't know it was Pollinator Week. And so I, but I definitely, that's something, you know, one of the huge themes in what I do there are certain insects that are greatly appreciated. And I think we've had an amazing success in people learning to appreciate bees more, for instance, in the last few years. There's a, a funny meme, I don't know if you've seen it, where the, a person says, me, a few years ago, I'd see a bee and I'd go, oh no, it's a bee, it might sting me. And now when I see a bee, I say, hey bee, how are you doing? Do you need some water? Are you thirsty? Can I get you some pollen? Like, like people have this different relationship and yet, We've failed to really educate the public about native pollinators, native bees. You know, the honeybee is an agricultural animal. So saving it is the equivalent of saving a cow. You know, it's so it's important. It's important for agriculture, but we have tens of thousands of amazing native bee species. And then you know, there's that level of understanding of getting the public to understand the, the diversity of bees. Um, but then there's also the level of understanding that pollinators are not just bees and butterflies, that there are flies that are pollinators, there are moths that are pollinators, there are beetles that are pollinators. And so I think about that a lot, especially now that the business is established, like what messages are really important? What messages do I really feel like if I could make sure everybody understood these things about insects and arthropods, what would they be? I, I thought that when I was developing the high school class, I thought this, this is it. I'm going to have these kids for two weeks. And for some of these kids, this is it. This is how much they're going to learn about insects for their whole life. And they're going to go out and they're going to vote and they're going to be consumers and they're going to be part of society and they're going to make decisions about that affect nature and so I really thought I actually like made a list before I started that class of the top things that I wish that I wish people knew about about insects. So every now and then I have to circle back to that and think are my programs getting that message across. In your high school classes, do you discuss pollination syndromes and all those different types or do you We do some. We definitely do some. I mean it's it's hard. It's a it's I mean I get them three hours a day for two weeks. So one of my main goals is getting them outside. So we do, they do um, 
both some time out in nature where we actually do do an insect collection, which I think makes entomology a little different from other types of <laughs> um, nature education in that, in that sometimes we go out and we actually do kill <laughs> bugs. But uh, we also do, I, I also really wanted to be sure that we had time where we were just out in nature. So we'll do either iNaturalist projects or uh, a thing that I recently started doing with them that I, I felt worked really well was we went out and they would catch bugs alive and bring them to me and I'd have a photo tent and we'd take their portraits and then we'd release them and then to present their to the other students, which we do at the end of the class, they would present each pick a bug that they particularly liked and just say a quick fact about that and often that that's one thing that I really have loved about bringing photography into it is that photography is an incredible tool to be able to allow people to kind of develop more empathy for these animals because you see them in this way that you don't normally see them if you take a portrait of an insect you know that you can really sometimes affect people they'll actually look at their eyes and I know there's a lot of people not wanting to anthropomorphize, and I certainly don't want people to overly anthropomorphize. But I think in in the case of arthropods, it would it's good to have people see them as as living things, right? Um, not to sidetrack, but I I went to a really interesting talk where somebody presented some research where they had a, a, a group, and I could get you the reference if you want it. Um, but they had a robot that this group had made. And they were getting, they told, they half the people, they told them a story about the robot. And they said, oh, its name is Jeff, and it really likes to do these things around the lab, and da-da-da-da-da. And half the story they didn't. And then they asked the people to smash the robot with a hammer. And one of the really interesting things that, that related back to entomology that made the person at the workshop bring this up was that the people who were having trouble smashing this robot one of the things that they kept, because it was a robot that was shaped like a bug, one of the things they kept saying to themselves to try to get themselves to smash the robot was, it's just a bug. It's just a bug. So here's a, a, a non-living thing, just a bunch of circuitry and gears, and people, in order to induce themselves to be willing to smash it, were trying to convince themselves it was a living thing. And so that's kind of where we are with entomology is that a, a very frequent complaint that my peers and I share with each other is you'll say something about a, one of your insects or a beautiful insect that you see and you'll post a photo on social media and there's always people who feel the need to say, oh, I'd smash it or I'd kill it with fire. And so people have this incredibly negative association with these animals, which, uh, you know, part of me can understand, but part of me, it's so sad because one of my big one of my big goals is that, you know, the, the enthusiasm that you saw at, when I was presenting at the conference, that's just, that's there. That's genuine. Like if somebody asks me to talk about insects, that's how it comes out. And that comes from just an incredible love of, and just an awe. It feeds my soul, the beauty that I get to see once I was awakened to this group of animals and could notice the intricacy, the stories, the biology, the evolution, the amazing beauty that is contained within this group and it makes me sad that so often people have kind of gotten these blinders on by our cultural norms around insects and that they don't take a moment to appreciate how beautiful these things are I think it's it's such a and and it's every they're everywhere so there's this opportunity for this connection with nature 
that you don't always get, even with birds or mammals. Their insects are so accessible. That's one of the things I say on my website. You know, they're they're accessible. They're there. Once you wake up to them, you start noticing them, and then it's this delightful part of your interaction with the world every day. Because you'll see a little jumping spider on the fence as you're walking by, or you'll see a a beautiful dragonfly light, you know, landing, or and it just so it, like if we're talking about connecting people with nature, it's such an amazing group to connect people because they're ubiquitous. And so they can pull you into nature in, in the most, you know, unexpected places. The, I first noticed the Painted Lady migration had made its way up from Southern California in the Trader Joe's parking lot. So I was standing there loading my groceries and all of a sudden I noticed all, you know, so even in, they, they have this way of adapting to our environment, at least some species do. And so they're there always right yep yeah yeah i know i my first project in grad school mm -hmm. was pollination ecology yeah and i had numbered a whole bunch of bees and had trained them and all that but they weren't this hives were a little you know unstable and so i got some them trained and then the whole thing kind of fell apart and i changed projects yeah. but I know what you mean. I talk to bees. You mentioned earlier, you, you know, people are learning to talk to bees and all that. I talk to them. You know, I see them on the walkway. I say, ladies, what are you doing here? You, you know, people are going to step on you. Yeah. So I pick them up. I move them aside. The yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, I, and I find, you know, I've seen that change happen for people. I've got a some families that are regulars in my classes and I get these little messages from parents all the time of, you know, we saw this bug and when we were camping or in the parking lot or at school and they helped it out. And so that's heartwarming that, you know, that I've seen that change happen for some, some people that, you know, that, then that makes me feel like I'm, I, I'm doing the right thing. I'm successful in, in what I do. And, and sometimes even if people, I can't bring them all the way around to loving insects, they'll, they'll see that I love them and they'll see they bring me joy and they'll like me as a teacher and they'll, you know, so then it just at least changes their relationship and they realize, well, somebody cares about these things. So what's next for you? Yeah, I'm trying to figure out how to expand this. I think... I think as a lot of educators do, I sometimes, and a lot, as a lot of women do, I sometimes undervalue my expertise and my education and all of that. So I've been thoroughly enjoying kind of the theme of the last year has been adding in developing skills that I've, I've longed to develop for quite a while. And drawing is one of those I've tried to make and I'm trying to even increase the amount of time that I spend on practicing my drawing skills and I'd really like to put more of my insect illustrations out there and be involved with and add that to what I do, maybe as freelance, maybe as just a component of Beetle Lady of, you know, more of the materials that I use or things that are originally created and drawn by me. And the photography has been really similar because, you know, going back to what I said about entomology being one of the only naturalist fields where you, you'll frequently have people encouraged to kill the, the very things that they love and study. Um, for me, a big shift too has been the photography because as a graduate student, you know, I'd go on these expeditions and there would be all this complicated permitting to do the insect collections and bring things, specimens back for study and all of that. And then I felt like once graduate school started or stopped, 
I wanted to visit those parts of the world and interact with those insects, but I was so stuck in that mindset of an insect collection and, and, and systematics, which involves collecting specimens and adding them to museum collections and sequencing their DNA. And then photography kind of, when that came into the picture earlier uh, this year, that really flipped things for me. Cause now like I just went on a trip to Ecuador for a week that was a photography trip. And so I, I got all these amazing photographs of the insects there, you know, didn't kill a single insect the whole time, didn't have to worry about permitting or any of that. And for me, that's been really great because although I still understand and, uh, and appreciate the role that insects, insect collections play in conservation and, and in education of, of entomologists, it's, really, it was, it's been really great to have that kind of shift of doing that. So I really want to add in the photography and the art. And yeah, there's a bunch of things that I just don't know how, how one gets into these areas, but like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of really good books about insects, especially for children, but there's also a lot of really bad books about insects for children. And I would love, um, I would think maybe my expertise would lend itself to doing that. And so I, I would love to be able to, you know, have a chance to author books on insects and that sort of thing. So I'm always, I'm always on the lookout. I haven't done very much video stuff. I'm not really a YouTuber. It's just, I don't know. <laughs> it might be my age and my generation, but I haven't felt the need to do that. But, you know, maybe, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm open. I'm, I'm trying to figure out like now that, that it's been as successful as it has been, what, what's going to be next to kind of reach a broader audience, especially outside of the Bay Area. You've done a fantastic job. If I may ask another one more, more question, mm -hmm. you know, being a freelancer involves picking better clients, you know, and presenting yourself, uh, presenting yourself well and teaching prospective clients how to treat you. Yeah. How did you learn to do that? Because you do that very well through your website and the way you present all your programs. How did you learn to do that? I think a big thing for me is that I, what I do is I don't compromise what I'm presenting. It doesn't get, it gets modified to fit the client to a certain degree, right? Depending on what you want to learn and what age groups we're talking about, but the integrity of it doesn't ever get compromised, right? If somebody wants an, ooh, bugs are gross, let's squish them, creepy birthday party. That's just not me. That's not what I do. So I think that's part of it is just presenting it as this is something, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I can't tell you how, it, how I got it or what, it, if it was developed, it wasn't developed in any intentional way. It's just my enthusiasm. It's all genuine. Like I love, I love this so much. And so that comes across. And so I think, you know, every now and then there's somebody who just doesn't get it and, and you know, I had a teacher squish a spider in front of me the other, a few weeks ago and, and want me to see that she squished it in front of me. And, you know, it was just tremendously rude and disrespectful. And I thought, what is this? What, <laughs> where did, where did this come from? But, um, yeah, I think it's just that like, for, for instance, when I started the business, I wasn't going to do birthday parties ever. And I still don't do very many. I do one or two a month, maybe at most, but a friend of mine who also has a PhD and works freelance uh, called me up from birthday party and she said, you know, I'm at this birthday party and 
This person's presenting about reptiles and it's scientific, it's educational. She's not compromising her message. And my friend's paying her $350 to be here for the hour. She said, where in academia would you have gotten paid that like that? This is not beneath you. And that was, that was a huge message for me to hear, to, to realize that like, although there's a tendency, and I'm sure there are people that I was in academia with who would look down on what I'm doing now and think it was a waste of a PhD, I'm, I'm happy doing this. And even when I'm at, you know, the skincare corporate party, those people are, the science is not getting compromised for that. They're getting the real thing and people respond to it. I think there's, people aren't given enough credit for how smart they are and how, especially if somebody's going to be hiring somebody like me, they obviously want science, right? And then often, you know, I do have people that are absolutely stunned when they find out I actually have a PhD. I'm surprised how many people think I just make that up. Like I say, Dr. Dole, and then after class, a parent will say, wait, you actually are a doctor? And I think, well, I'm not lying about that. But they'll think it's something cute I do for the kids, right, sometimes, especially with the younger kids. So yeah, I think that's the thing is like the, what I do, whether I'm walking into a school or a library or a docent education event or a birthday party or whatever, it's always, it's always that, like, it's not a show. I genuinely feel the animals deserve our attention and our respect and our conservation and our awe. And so that comes across. To learn more about Stephanie and Beetle Lady, go to BeetleLady.com and visit the show notes for a list of resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find the show notes at talaterra.com. Talaterra is a podcast for and about independent educators working in natural resource fields and environmental education. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and colleagues. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Tanya Marion. <laughs>